All right, kiddos. <clears throat> now, we've got another Bible today that we're going to give away. We'll give another one away next week. And I know some of you have this already, so just see me after the service. We would love to give this to you. But we're going to talk about an Old Testament book today in our sermon. We're going to be looking at the story of Isaiah and what he has to tell us about Jesus coming. And so here's the way this children's Bible talks about it. It's called Operation No More Tears. And it's a collection of things from... Isaiah wrote a really big book, and they kind of condense it down a little bit. Do you know what your name means? Well, there was once a man called Isaiah, and his name meant God to the rescue. That might sound like a bit of a funny name to you, but it was just the right name for Isaiah because God had a special job for Isaiah. You see, Isaiah's job was to listen to God and then to tell people what he heard. Now, God let Isaiah know a secret. God was going to fix his broken world. He showed Isaiah his secret rescue plan, Operation No More Tears. This is the message that God gave Isaiah. It was like a letter that God wrote to his children. Dear little flock, you are all wandering away from me like sheep in an open field. You have always been running away from me, and now you're lost, and you can't find your way back. But I can't stop loving you. I will come to find you, so I am sending you a shepherd to look after you and love you, to carry you home to me. You've been stumbling all around like people in a dark room, but into the darkness a bright light will shine. It will chase away all the shadows like sunshine. A little baby will be born, a royal son. His mommy will be a young girl who doesn't even have a husband yet. His name will be called Emmanuel, which mean, means God has come to live with us. He is one of King David's children's children's children the Prince of Peace. Yes, someone is going to come and rescue you, but he won't be who anyone expects. He will be a king, but he won't live in a palace, and he won't have lots of money. He will be poor, and he will be a servant. But this king, he will heal the whole wide world. He will be a hero. He will fight for his people and rescue them from their enemies. But he won't have big armies, and he won't fight with swords. He will make the blind see. He will make the lame leap like deer. He will make everything the way it always was meant to be. But people will hate him and they won't listen to him. He will be like a lamb. He will suffer and he will die. It's the secret rescue plan we made from before the beginning of the world. And it's the only way to get you back. But this guy, he won't stay dead. I will make him alive again. And one day when he comes back to rule forever... The mountains and the trees will dance and sing for joy, and the earth will shout out loud. His fame will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Everything sad will come un untrue, and even death is going to die. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him. Watch for him. Wait for him. He will come. I promise. We light these candles for a couple of different reasons. And today, we need to make sure we light that pink one. And I'll let you, let me click that. You want to help me? There we go. We light this one today. I've got to get the pink one. We light this one today for the joy that we have because God has promised to not leave. Uh-oh. There we go. Somebody put a trick candle up here. 
We like this one today because there is joy that we have in knowing that we can be forgiven. And so kids, let me pray for us and then you guys can go back to your seats, okay? God, we, um, we throw the word joy around like it's a very common term and it really shouldn't be. When we look at all the brokenness and just messed upness in our world, uh, we are reminded that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. But we are reminded that through Christ, you are making everything right again. And so God, help us not to be passive observers of what's going on. Help us to be part of building your kingdom. And God, may we take great joy in that. Help us as we listen to your uh, secret rescue plan as it's told to us from the story of Isaiah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> we um, have had a, had a full morning because in our first service, not only did we have baptism, but we did something at the end of our first service that we'll get a chance to do here, and that is to uh, remember in a very specific way Jesus' sacrifice for us. You know, there are only, churches have traditions and they have habits and they have ruts that they get stuck in, but you know, when it really comes down to it, there are only two things that Jesus has said specifically his church is supposed to do, and that is to, uh, for everyone who is a follower of Jesus to be baptized and it is to remember him regularly through the observance of this memorial meal. And we'll have the opportunity to do that. But we also believe that an integral part of what happens in Christian worship is the proclamation of his word. And so this morning, um, it's, it's, we'll kind of call it a mini-sermon, just to kind of get, get, um, get done everything that we need to in the hour or so that we have to gather together. Um, but we're going to be looking at an Old Testament book, specifically the book of Isaiah, and uh, a lot of people, when they get into their Bible reading plan, um, they go really good. They, they motor through Genesis and Exodus. You've got you know, the story of creation and Abraham and Joseph, and then Moses is the rescuer. And then you get to Leviticus, and you get all these crazy laws about digging holes in the woods and not doing this, and don't go there or do that. And you go, oh my goodness, all right, I'm done. And so most people don't even get to the book of Isaiah. They, they kind of peter out in the history books, and, and they don't get there. And the truth is, when we talk about the book of Isaiah, when we talk about any of the prophetic books, they are largely books about judgment. So they're really bright and cheery books. Um, you, you, they're, they're, they're quite fun. They are, uh, to kind of follow our sermon theme of light uh, coming after the darkness, they remind us that while God set everything up to head in a particular direction, there was this cycle of seeking God, and then he would bless and he would heal. And then as soon as you got well again, you forgot about God. And then you didn't think about him again until you needed him again. Until, kids, you never pray at school until it's final exam time, college students. You know, and then, boy, we pray a lot. Or you don't, you don't pray all month until it's time to sit down and write the bills. Oh, dear God, please stretch this stretch us out. And so it's a book about judgment, and it reminds us how far we have gotten away from God's plan. But even though the book of Isaiah is mostly about judgment, there are rays of hope that shine all the way through it. And so there are three very simple kind of devotional thoughts that I want to share with you that I think are appropriate for us moving into the holiday season. And uh, the first is this, the first point, is that our salvation begins with a supernatural birth. And of course, we are referring to the virgin birth of Christ. People are all fine and content with Christian ethics and Christian morality, but then you start to get to the supernatural stuff that happens. And of course, enlightened modern man can't believe in all this fairy tale stuff. 
Well, I hope to show you in, in short order that believing in the virgin birth of Christ is absolutely a necessity for people who call themselves Christians. As a matter of fact, to call yourself a Christian and not take God's word seriously on this point may call into question your entire commitment to Christ. Because if you're not going to believe what his word says, then how do you believe anything about Jesus at all? Because his word is what gives us the story of Jesus. And so we'll be in Isaiah chapter 7. That's page 488 in the Pew Bible in front of you. But the scripture will be um, on the screen too. We'll look at uh, the first seven verses and then we'll skip down to verses uh, 10 through 16. There's a very particular um, historical situation that Isaiah is addressing. And I think a lot of times when we read Isaiah 7, 14 about the prophecy of one born from a virgin, we don't ever get the context. Because I think when we understand the context, what God does is even more beautiful than just believing that he's making a prediction for 725 years down the road. Okay? Listen to what God's word says. This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, king of Aram, along with Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, waged war against Jerusalem, but could not succeed. But when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of the forest shaking in the wind. So the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet with your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the fuller's field. Say to him, calm down and be quiet. That's good holiday advice, isn't it? Anybody feel like you need to calm down and be quiet over the Christmas holiday? Man, it gets busy. Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering stubs of firebrands, the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has plotted harm against you. They say, let's go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. But this is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. Verses 10 through 16. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Ask for a sign from the Lord your God, from the depths of Sheol to the heights of heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Then Isaiah responded, Listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. And by the time he learns to reject what is bad and to choose what is good, he will be eating butter and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. There's a whole lot more to the story than just Isaiah 7, 14. And we see that there's a very particular context that is happening. Ahaz is the king of Judah, and by this time, the nation of Israel has been cut in half. And you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And what has happened is there is um, a lack of peace in the Mideast. I know that's a big surprise to many of you, but there's a problem. And what has happened is Israel has gotten in bed with Syria, and they want to rebel against Assyria. And in order to strengthen their coalition, Israel and Syria say, hey, we need Judah on our team. So they go to Ahaz, who is a brand new ruler, and they say, hey, listen, we're going to rebel against Assyria, and we want you to join our team. And Ahaz says, no. So now Israel and Syria, who were trying to recruit Judah, attack Judah to try to force them into their alliance. And God says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about them. 
You see, there's a, there's a huge difference between trusting God when everything is fine and dandy and trusting God when it seems like the bottom falls out, isn't there? So what's Ahaz going to do? Is he going to take this uh, word from God about, hey, be calm, don't freak out, um, I got this. Is he going to trust God? I mean, that's what a good Jewish king would do, isn't it? No, it's not. According to 2 Kings 16, what Ahaz does is he takes all the money out of the temple treasury. He takes all the offerings that have been given to the temple and he sends it to the king of Assyria to come rescue him from Syria and Israel. Instead of trusting God, he trusts in the arm and the strength of man and he recruits his own ally, the person he was recruited to be on the team against, he recruits him to fight against the people that are bullying him. And he gave his tithes to bribe the king of Assyria to rescue him. So God, in the midst of all of this, sends Isaiah to Ahaz to encourage him, to reassure him, to tell him, yes, things are bad, but I want to make you a promise that it's not going to be, it's not going to be terrible. Just trust me. And God even does something really crazy here. He offers a sign. It's not like Gideon who demanded a sign. God here offers the sign, and Ahaz in his pride says, you know, God, listen, yeah, I understand you're offering me a sign. I'm going to refuse to ask for one. So here's, here's the deal. This is where things get really important about this whole prophecy about the virgin being born. We know now, kind of looking back, hindsight 2020, we know Isaiah 7, 14 applies to Christ. But here is Isaiah's time, and here's Christ's time. It's 725 years apart. Okay, so why did God send Isaiah to Ahaz? To reassure him. So here's the deal. If, if the only thing about this prophecy is 725 years in the future, how does that help Ahaz at all in the here and now? There's a really easy answer for that. It doesn't. I mean, what if you are in dire straits, things are really bad for you, and, and God comes to you in a dream, he comes to you in a vision, he sends a prophet to you, and he says, Josh Cannon, I know your Gamecocks are kind of down. But I want you to know, your children's 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 children children's 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 children are going to have a winning season. <laughs> Boy, it's going to be tough to be a fan. What, what good does it do in your situation to know that 725 years down the road, everything's going to be okay? And this, this really gets to the point of how do we interpret... Old Testament prophecy accurately. And here's the very best way, I think, for us to look at this. Number one, when the Hebrew in uh, Isaiah 7.14 refers to a virgin, the word in Hebrew is not virgin. This is going to sound really controversial to some of you. So hang in there with me for about four minutes. We'll figure it out. The word in Isaiah 7.14 is the word alma, which is the word for a young woman. Now, the implication is that any young woman is unmarried and therefore virginal. So the virginity of this woman is implied. And what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, listen, he goes, I want you to know something. Here's a sign that God is going to give you. There's a woman who right now is unmarried and has never had relations with a man, and she's going to have a son in the near term. And before he reaches an age of moral discernment, being able to consciously choose what is right or what is wrong, by the time he reaches that age, the two nations that you fear will be destroyed. That helps! Ahaz! And so I think what's happening here, the, the best way I think for us to understand this is it's kind of like looking at a mountain range. I don't know if you've ever looked at a mountain range 
where, you know, you're driving, you see the mountains on the horizon, and you're driving towards it, and you see this mountain, but the closer you get, now you start to see there's another mountain right behind it that you couldn't see because your perspective was a little bit different. That's exactly what is happening here because there, there are two children, most ultimately, that are being talked about here. There is one that will serve as a sign to Ahaz. The first child will be a sign. But the second child, the second mountain behind that first mountain, that child will be a savior. And that becomes really clear to us because Isaiah will continue to talk about this child that will be born and it becomes immediately very clear that there is no child, no boy born in the 8th century BC that could fulfill all of the prophecy uh, revealed uh, in this, um, this uh, particular prophecy. So are we downplaying the virgin birth? No, absolutely not. Because when the New Testament gets, the Hebrew gets translated into Greek and the Septuagint and then the, the Greek New Testament is written, uh, the word that is unmistakably used in Matthew and in Luke is the word virgin. There is no wiggle room there. The word in the Old Testament was young woman, but as the New Testament writers see this prophecy applied to Christ, they go, you know what? Here is what is happening. And so here's why I think a good understanding of how to interpret Isaiah's prophecy is so important. Because what it does is it brings comfort in the present and a promise for the future. If it was just the promise for the future, then what Ahaz walks away from with his conversation with Isaiah is a promise 725 years in the future that doesn't do him any good in his present circumstances. So here's the question, okay? A little little Bible theology for you. Does God, most ultimately, at the end of time, want to bless you? This is yes. This is no. And this is glory, hallelujah. Um, (laughs) Glory, hallelujah. He wants to bless you. He wants to take care of you. Does that mean that God doesn't care about what happens from point A to point B? No. He wants to bring you comfort today. And he wants to give you a promise for the future. That's beautiful, friends. That's that's good. God cares now as well as caring in the future. And so guys, listen, here's the thing. If you are one of these guys that kind of struggles with the virgin birth, you go, man, there's just no way that could happen. Let me just encourage you that it is radically inconsistent for you to say that, okay? Because think about this here for a second. There's a quote in your bulletin, and you'll see it on the screen, and I'm not going to follow it. You can read it on your own, okay? We believe that the Bible was written by man or written by God. Both! How do you explain that? We believe that Jesus was 50% man, 50% God. No. We believe that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. How do you explain that? I don't know. It's supernatural. We believe that Jesus died, the most fundamental thing to our faith. And after he died, he picked his life back up again and went to heaven. He's alive again. And so here's the thing. You start to deny the supernatural ability of God to do what he says he's going to do, and you completely eviscerate the Christian faith. So it is inconsistent to say that you don't believe in the virgin birth, but to believe that you have a resurrected king as your Lord and Savior. If you accept the premise that Jesus got up from the grave, it's kind of small potatoes to believe the big fish swallowed a man. 
or to believe that God created everything with the power of his word, or that the Bible is really inspired by the Holy Spirit, even though it was recorded by sinful, fallible man. Our salvation begins with the supernatural birth. But it gets better, because that child is continue, continues to be spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9. Flip with me over just a page or two. And here it becomes really clear. Uh, chapters 7 through 9 are specifically focused on this child to be born in the future. There is a near value to the prophecy. There is a far value to the prophecy. But when we get to Isaiah 9, it becomes really clear that no 8th century B.C. boy can fulfill all of the prophecies spoken of. Because here we see our second point that we are told that our salvation ultimately, ultimately, not now, but in the future, will usher in a spiritual government. A spiritual government. Those are two terms you have probably never, ever used before in your life. Spiritual government. Instead, we have our government. And when we get to Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7, it is very clear that this child that is being spoken of, it's clearly messianic, and the New Testament unmistakably and unquestioningly applies it, uh, the story of the prophecy of this child, to Jesus. Listen to Uh, what the Bible says. Ahaz had been unfaithful and trusted in the arm of man, bribing Assyria to come to their rescue. Here, we get a glimpse of what it will be like when everybody trusts the Lord. Everybody trusts the Lord. And you don't have to call Homeland Security because that dude that you saw at the supermarket freaked you out. You don't have to ever call the police. You don't ever have to lock your door. This is what God's word says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation. You have increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. You have shattered the rod on their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us and a son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Beautiful imagery of light and of great rejoicing followed by three specific four statements. God is going to do great things. Four, four, four. Verse four, verse five, verse six. Verse four, how will you do this? You will shatter the yoke of oppression. It says that all of our burdens and oppressions will be lifted. They'll be eradicated. Verse 5, For the trampling boot and the bloody garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Peace and war are at battle. And guess who wins? You would not think that war would lose to peace. Different strategies, different weapons, and yet we're told that peace, that war will be destroyed by peace. It'll be gone. The boots of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be nothing but fuel for the fire. And then verse 6, what will God do? He'll break our burdens. He'll bring in peace. And how will he do it? For a child 
will be born forth. This child in Isaiah 9 is the same as the far off child in Isaiah chapter 7. He's called a counselor. He has wise plans, wise advice far beyond mere human capacity. He is called mighty God. This is no kid simply born in the 8th century BC. This person is divine in his being. He's called everlasting father. This trips people up because this is supposed to be a prophecy about Jesus. So are we getting our Trinitarian all mixed up? Jesus is the son. He's not the father, but he's called here eternal father, everlasting father. Um, The word father doesn't always mean heavenly father. One of the primary roles of a father is to be the benevolent protector, the provider for his people. And friends, how does Jesus do that? He lays down his life for his friends. He is fulfilling the role of father by being our protector. And he's called the prince of peace, the one who brings a peace that passes all understanding, that lasts for all eternity. Verse 7 says this dominion will be fast. The empire of grace. There's another movie with an empire coming out this week. The empire of grace will know no end. It will extend as far as creation. And we will have a spiritual government. That sounds good. I'm tired of hearing Donald Trump. He's the only one who's not tired of hearing his own voice. I'm tired of comparisons with Bernie Sanders and Marco Rubio and Hillary. Can't Jesus be president? He already is in the hearts of his people. And so when we talk about spiritual government, we go, yes, we want it. But how do we get from this prophecy of a supernatural birth to this promise of a spiritual government? Isaiah gives us the answer. And he says that the pathway from this prophecy to our future peace is through the sacrificial death of the promised servant. We'll conclude by looking at Isaiah 53 which establishes this point. Isaiah 53, look at verse 2 and 3. It talks about the appearance of this servant. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He did not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. So he was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone that people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. How did Jesus appear? Not the way people thought he was going to. A king with no money and no palace, a king with no apparent power. He was unimpressive. He was not regal enough. He's a king that knew sorrow and grief. Man, that's not the king I want. I want somebody who knows power and wealth. Not suffering and grief. His appearance was not what we expected. Verse 4 and 5, his action is not what we would have anticipated. Yet, despite the fact that we rejected him, yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pain, but we in turn regarded him as stricken for his own sins, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our transgressions. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Thoroughly unimpressed with this son that comes, this everlasting father, this prince of peace. 
And in his action, he bore our sins, our grief, our transgressions, the iniquities of others, even though he himself was innocent. And he died for his people, even without their support or their understanding. You don't have to believe in Jesus, and it doesn't change the fact that he died, and he died as an offering for sin. Verse 7 and 9, we see his attitude. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. His attitude was one of humility. It was not beneath the Son of God to serve his creation by dying. And here, midway between Genesis and Matthew, we have an image of a sacrificial sheep. And in verse 6, he happens to say, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We stray as sheep. But through faith in this servant, this son, we stray as sheep, but we return as children. That's beautiful. We don't return as sheep. We return as children who have been adopted by this king. Verse 10 and 12, we see his approval. Why does he do what he does? Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of his anguish. And he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as a spoil. Because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels... Yet he bore the sin of many, and he interceded for the rebels. Friends, as we talk about darkness and light in the entire storyline of the Bible, 725 years before Jesus was born, before we talk about Luke 2 and the baby in the manger, it was prophesied that he would come. And this passage in Isaiah is the higher watermark of Old Testament prophecy because there is no passage of Scripture that is, that is more literally fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ than Isaiah 53. It says he was numbered among the thieves. Who was he crucified among? But he was buried with the rich. Joseph of Arimathea uh, took his body, cared for him, a man of some substance. And as we prepare to celebrate the incarnation of God, we have the opportunity this morning to remember that we can celebrate his supernatural birth and yearn for his spiritual government best. We express that yearning best by remembering his sacrificial death. And that's what we're called to do in the Lord's Supper.